This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to our program today, and thank you for joining us. I'm Jeremiah Jacques. Two of our segments on the show today go into detail about Germany's expanding role in Middle Eastern affairs. The first focuses on the shamefully weak peacekeeping efforts that America and its partners have made, especially in Cyprus and the Golan Heights. And it shows that these half-hearted efforts prepared the way for Germany to take on a much larger role in this volatile region. They opened the door for Berlin, which we'll learn all about in a report from trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau. The second segment will take a look at some related trends. With that door open to Germany, the Germans are walking in. They're taking on more and more responsibility in Arab peace negotiations and making preparations to grow more active in other aspects of Middle Eastern affairs as well. And this German activity is making a difference. A compelling case can be made that Germany has been instrumental in preventing the Hamas-Israel war from escalating into something broader. Trumpet writer Josue Michels will bring us up to speed on these very significant developments. And then for the third segment, we'll take a look at one of Europe's strongmen. This is a pro-Russia individual who's intent on challenging some EU policies, including its sanctions against Russia, its support for Ukraine, and its migration policy as well. We are talking about Slovakian leader Robert Fico. Fico has slipped under the radar of most onlookers, mainly because Slovakia is a small nation, but he could have an outsized influence on EU policy which we'll learn all about in a report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. And then our last word today is about God's view on making and managing money. So we'll examine that at the end of today's episode, and we'll begin now with this look at the consequences of failed peacekeeping policies by Mr. Abraham Blondo. It was a sweltering hot summer day in Nicosia, Cyprus. As the unrelenting sun beat down on the city, Master Corporal David E. Blondeau and a small contingent of soldiers patrolled the streets of the Green Line. Since the 1974 ceasefire between the Greek and Turkish Cypriots, the United Nations took over a demilitarized zone separating the two sides, which has been called the Green Line. In Nicosia, the capital, the zone is sometimes only a few meters wide and is a maze of vacated buildings. As Master Corporal Blondeau led his patrol of Blue Berets, he could see the Turkish side lined with machine gun emplacements. Despite being at peace, it was always very tenuous. The Greeks would stage protests along their side of the Green Line, being whipped up into a frenzy by agitators. Blondeau often saw children positioned at the front of the protest, being placed between the Turkish machine guns and the Greek agitators. On this hot day in 1986, the air was heavy with tension. The Greeks had whipped up a protest and were moving along the edge of the Green Line, while Blondeau's patrol was moving parallel on a street inside the Green Zone. The protest was coming to a prominent Turkish position with their machine guns nervously trained on the approaching mob. The only thing that stood in the way of a bloodbath was Blondeau's small peacekeeper patrol. Blondeau told his men to drop their kit and put down their weapons. They had so little ammunition it didn't matter, and they would have to ask permission to use lethal force. By the time confirmation was received, everyone would be dead. Weapons were just for show. Blondeau decided to place his unarmed men between the two groups as a barrier. He also decided that he would rush in and detain the main Greek agitator in an attempt to dissipate the protest. The agitator wouldn't have known what hit him. A 230-pound mustache Métis ex-football player would have hit him at full sprint. 
Blondo didn't have orders to do this. In fact, he would have been severely disciplined for taking that action. In the split seconds where decisions are made that decide life or death, he believes this was the only course to take that had a chance of preventing bloodshed. He had a newborn baby at home in Canada that he hadn't met yet, but he was willing to risk it all for people he didn't know and for a conflict that he wasn't a part of to try and keep the peace. Miraculously, at the last moment, danger was averted. Suddenly, the Greek protests changed direction, avoiding any confrontation with the Turks, and Blondeau didn't need to execute his plan. But would the same thing happen tomorrow, next week, next month? This is the life of a UN peacekeeper. These are the impossible situations politicians and bureaucrats in air-conditioned rooms thousands of miles away volunteer these men for. These are soldiers trained to be decisive, take the initiative, and use lethal force. Peacekeeping may be one of the most difficult tasks simply because it is counterintuitive to their training on how to make peace through winning war. My dad was on tour in Cyprus for six months with a UNFICYP, or United Nations Peacekeeping Force in Cyprus. Eight years earlier, he had also done a six-month tour in the Golan Heights in Israel in 1978 with UNDAF, or the United Nations Disengagement Observer Force, that were tasked with patrolling the Syrian border after the Yom Kippur War. His tour in the Golan was just before the Iranian Revolution, Anduf had an Iranian contingent, and when the revolution did happen in 1979, this is after my dad had finished his posting there, Israel surrounded the UN compound and forced them to leave. In 2013, I was able to visit the Golan Heights and walk the same ground he did 35 years earlier. I remember many family meals where he would tell stories, and we would discuss the lessons from them. One of the lessons we would discuss was the futility of peacekeeping. He knew they weren't solving the real problems facing these war-torn regions. My dad was only one soldier that had participated in the 72 peacekeeping missions since 1948. Others may have different experiences or opinions, but there is one fact that cannot be disputed. Things in the world have only gotten worse since we have been peacekeeping. Following World War II, the nations of the world set about to solve the unsolvable riddle. How do we have world peace? The United Nations was born in San Francisco on October 24, 1945. It would be a forum where all nations could work together to solve their problems and not resort to the sword. That is a noble ideal, but from its inception, it was doomed to fail. The late Herbert W. Armstrong, who was present at that opening in 1945, wrote this prescient analysis. Quote, Already, I see the clouds of World War III gathering at this conference. I do not see peace being germinated here, but the seeds of the next war. The United Nations Conference is producing nothing but strife and bickering and is destined, from its inception, to end in total failure. Yet world leaders are pronouncing it's the world's last hope, with the only alternative annihilation of humanity. End quote. The most visible proof of this UN failure is the legacy of peacekeeping. Peacekeeping is regarded as sacred in Canada, partly because it is a Canadian invention. When the Suez Crisis struck in 1956, when Egypt seized control of the strategic Seagate, Britain and Israel intervened to restore control. However, the United States and UN intervened in the belief that the age of empires was over and that Egypt had sovereignty over the Suez. The Canadian ambassador to the UN, Lester B. Pearson, who was to be a future prime minister, conceived the idea of an armed third party that would supervise the withdrawal from the Suez Canal Zone. Pearson would win a Nobel Peace Prize, and the idea of modern peacekeeping was born. Ever since this time, peacekeeping through the UN has become the go-to reaction to international conflicts and Western intervention. And what is the track record of peacekeeping? We write this in our booklet, He Was Right. Quote, From its inception in 1945 until 2016, there has been no less than 300 wars and well over 3,000 other military conflicts, 
with just about as many people killed as died in World War II itself. The UN has been involved in 71 peacekeeping missions during that time. In 2015 alone, it maintained 16 missions, and the number of conflicts worldwide was 54, resulting in over 12.4 million refugees. Is the UN succeeding in keeping peace? End quote. Peacekeeping has been an abject failure in keeping peace. My dad's own experience confirms what the statistics and track records say. We have used peacekeeping as a replacement for intervention. Instead of confronting important geopolitical situations, we have diminished our influence in these key areas. Instead of solving the problems that cause war, we have projected weakness and ineptitude. The weakness and failure of peacekeeping has not been ignored by our rivals, but has been exploited. Mr. Armstrong predicted that the schemes for war would continue unabated with the existence of the UN. He wrote in a January 1977 Plain Truth, The United Nations won't be able to bring peace. The aggressor nations, and we are so gullible we never recognize them until after they plunge the world into another war, will go right after on their scheming and diabolical planning for world rule, end quote. The extraordinary truth is that these aggressor nations have used peacekeeping and the auspices of the UN to advance their schemes and plans for conquest. Not only does history attest to this, but it is a key Bible prophecy for our time today. Notice this keynote prophecy in Daniel 8, verses 23 through 25. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not of his own power, and he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper in practice, and shall destroy the mighty and holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and notice this next line, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. In the latter time, which is our day today, when the sins against God have saturated our nations, when the transgressors are come to the full, a powerful nation will become a military juggernaut. Notice the detail. This nation will destroy many through peace. So which nation is this? And does this nation use peacekeeping as a pretext for conquest? To answer that question, notice what we wrote in our booklet, He Was Right. Quote, Germany's first deployment since World War II was part of a UN-mandated mission to Somalia in 1993. The German army in particular has benefited from wearing this precious UN cloak. Thanks largely to its participation in peacekeeping missions, the Bundeswehr today is among the most technologically advanced, best-equipped militaries on the planet. Its troops are now dotted throughout Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, on UN and NATO missions. End quote. The Bible reveals that Germany will lead a resurrected Holy Roman Empire, a European power bloc, and will seek to build a Middle East Empire, echoing the bloody legacy of the Crusades. However, as Daniel reveals, they won't enter into the Holy Land, the, the promised land where Israel is, as a conquering horde, but as a nation of peacekeepers. There are two places in particular Germany has targeted in this strategy. These happen to be the same two areas my dad was a peacekeeper, Cyprus and Israel. Cyprus has always been a strategic key to the Mediterranean. This is because of its geography, its military bases, its long-distance radar, and its intelligence-gathering infrastructure. For a nation trying to control the Middle East, controlling Cyprus is crucial. Germany exploited weak UN influence to conquer Cyprus. And this all happened during the 2013 financial crisis. The Greek government in Cyprus needed a bailout. Germany, they stepped in and strong-armed Cyprus into a bad bailout deal that basically put the entire nation into economic servitude. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry, he pointed this out in his article, Why Germany Conquered Cyprus. Quote, Thus, the EU became the de facto ruler of Cyprus. It began telling Cypriots what they could and could not spend their money on. 
It dictated how to run their tax collecting systems and demanded changes to Cypriot law. And since Germany is Europe's largest economy and put up the largest share of money, Germany became the real power in Cyprus. And even since the October 7th attack on Israel, Germany and Holland, they've positioned special forces troops in Cyprus in case they need to intervene in Israel. And this ties in with another Bible prophecy, which indicates that Turkey, which controls the other half of Cyprus, they'll briefly be aligned with Europe in what we call the Psalm 83 alliance. But what is the purpose of this alliance? What's the purpose of this control of Cyprus? It's the conquest of Jerusalem. For generations, Israel has been engaged in the peace process, so trying to find a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This has included the Oslo Accords, the Camp David meetings, and UN peacekeeping efforts, like my dad's Unduff tour. The Bible reveals this peace process as Judah's deadly wound, so a, a nagging injury that will eventually turn fatal. Hosea 5.13 tells us that eventually Judah, which is the nation of Israel in the Middle East, will turn to Germany for a solution. The scripture says, When Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and sent to King Jerob, he could not heal you nor cure you of your wound. Quote. So this indicates that Israel will invite Germany into the country, specifically around Jerusalem, to be peacekeepers. There will be the threat of a conflict between the Arabs and the Jews in Jerusalem, and so Germany will step in under the auspices of peacekeeping. Yet by this peacekeeping, Germany will destroy many. They're going to betray the Jews and conquer Jerusalem. And this is explained in our Trumpet.com article, Should Israel Trust Germany? So after decades of weakness, ineptitude, and failure in peacekeeping of the Western powers, the United States, Britain, and others, Germany is prophesied to use this as a cloak for the last crusade. Our weakness and our failure in peacekeeping is what opens a door and, and really forces other nations to look to Germany for a solution, to look to Germany to be a successful peacekeeper. And that is the tragic destiny of peacekeeping. The risks and sacrifices of many brave men like my dad, who served as peacekeepers, has paved the way for the next world war. There's a massive lesson here that we need to take away from this history. No man-made solution can bring world peace. No matter the noble intentions or the courage and sacrifice, it will always bring about the fruits of death, like it says in Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is no hope in man. However, we do not need to be hopeless. The Bible reveals the solution to war, conflict, and the real path to peace. Jesus Christ is going to return soon and establish peace and keep peace forever by establishing the government and law of God. This is a destiny we can latch onto, that we can look forward to, if we do our part. To learn more about these vital prophecies, about the real legacy of peacekeeping, read our free booklet, He Was Right. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. So the door is now open to Germany in the Middle East. As we just heard, the failed policies of America and its partners have swung that door wide open to the Germans. And the Germans are not letting this opportunity slip by. They're now taking on more and more responsibility 
in Arab peace negotiations and preparing to jump in in other ways more meaningfully as well. And there is also compelling evidence that Germany has been instrumental in preventing the Hamas-Israel war from escalating into something broader. We'll learn all about this now in a report from trumpet rider Josue Michels. Germany prevent an escalation in the recent Middle East war. This is exactly what Trumpet editor-in-chief Jan Flui proposes in a recent Kiev David program. Also, there's a related subject to it, the uh, number one terrorist proxy that Iran has is the Hezbollah in Lebanon. Now, General Hassan Nasrallah said recently that if Israel attacked Gaza, that there would be an all-out attack from Hezbollah over all of uh, Israel. He said on November 3rd he was going to make a speech, and everybody expected, well, he'd be talking about this war that he was going to declare on Israel, but he didn't bring that subject up. He didn't state it specifically at all. And the question and puzzlement to a lot of people is, why not? Why didn't he uh, go ahead and say what he said before? Well, I'll tell you, there is a mind-staggering statement that Germany made that I think resonated somewhat with Hezbollah. It is, I mean, this is what you'd call strong war talk and, and a real military will. Here is what Germany said publicly and in their Bundestag, their, their Congress or Parliament, here's what the uh, German Chancellor said. Hezbollah must not intervene in the fighting. That statement from Chancellor Olaf Scholz is an ambitious goal. But the German Chancellor, Defense Minister and Foreign Minister have been busy in the Middle East to ensure just that. When the Turkish president visited Germany on November 17th, Germany's Chancellor Scholz said that Germany shares fears of a wider conflagration of the Middle East conflict. Erdogan responded that we need a humanitarian ceasefire in the region, which will give us the opportunity to save the region from this ring of fire. Almost every meeting between Germany and Turkey and Arab nations used similar language. All with the proposed goal to prevent an escalation in the Middle East conflict. Germany's bill concluded on October 20th in Hamas terror war against Israel, it is the German government that is one of the most important negotiators behind the scenes, end of quote. After years of good relations with Israel, Turkey and the Arab world, Germany is now the chief negotiator in the Middle East. King Abdullah II of Jordan said, after an October 17 meeting with Scholz in Berlin, the whole region is at the brink of falling into the abyss that this new cycle of death and destruction is pushing us towards. The threat of this war expanding is real. Following that meeting, Scholz said, I expressly warn Hezbollah and Iran not to intervene in the conflict. Coming back from his trip to the Middle East on October 19th, he said, Quote, I also used the trip and my talks with the King of Jordan, the Egyptian and Turkish presidents, and the Emir of Qatar, among others, to advocate that this conflict should not escalate further regionally. We all agreed that such a conflagration would be devastating for the entire region, end of quote. After meeting with Arab leaders in Egypt on October 21st, German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock said, quote, we all know that our views on the conflict differ. However, we are all united by the fact that the conflagration must be prevented. Germany's negotiating power should not be underestimated. 
Unlike most Arab countries, Germany also has good relations with Israel. Scholz noted, quote, Germany is held in high esteem in Israel. We see ourselves as a country that feels very responsible for ensuring that Israel's security remains guaranteed. That is understood in Israel. And yes, Germany is also very well respected by many other governments here. If that's the case, then we should take advantage of that. End of quote. On November 12, Scholz said calls for an immediate ceasefire in the Middle East equate to calls that Israel should allow Hamas to recover and obtain new missiles. Instead, he suggested humanitarian pauses, which Israel and its Arab neighbors agreed to. Germany's growing influence in the Middle East is something the trumpet has long expected. In his booklet The King of the South, Mr. Flew explains that Germany will lead an alliance that includes Turkey and various moderate Arab nations, as prophesied in Psalm 83. In Chapter 4, another more mysterious alliance, he writes, quote, The prophecy will, we will study lists several Islamic nations that will band together with the King of the North. German-led Europe, this alliance, has never happened in history. All the Bible commentaries will tell you that, but these nations are coming together now. If you watch Germany closely, you can see that it is already positioning itself for its whirlwind attack on Iran. And some of these preparations are laying the groundwork for this future alliance with Arab states. However, this prophecy reveals a crucial truth. This alliance is primarily and ultimately concerned not with countering Iran. End of quote. By posing as a bulwark against Iran and its terrorist allies, Germany is rallying various other nations to its side. But if you observe these events closely, you will see these nations hate one nation more than they hate Iran. This alone tells you Germany's alliance of these nations needs to be closely watched in light of Bible prophecy. Germany is negotiating with Arab nations in a supposed effort to bring peace to the Middle East. But these nations see Israel as the cause of violence in the region. While they call for a two-state solution, they really want to see Israel defeated. They're saying, as recorded in Psalm 83 verse 4, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. After Hamas terrorists falsely accused Israel, blowing up a hospital and the US government sided with Israel's account. Political activist Rania Al-Nimir said, quote, Today the Jordanians declare that the Americans are an enemy, just as the Israeli enemy is. End of quote. It's not surprising that some Israeli newspapers see Jordan and other surrounding nations as more of a foe than a friend. Some people in these nations are willing to fight the U.S. to bring down Israel. Yet Israel's leaders are accepting help from Germany, the nation that once attempted to extinguish all Jewish life. This should alarm the world. The Psalm 83 prophecy reveals what we can expect from these negotiations in the short term. Mr. Fluey explains that Lebanon's alliance with Iran is about to be broken and Germany will be the main cause. The Philistines, the Palestinians of Gaza and even those in the West Bank will shift their alliance to Germany as well. This is evident from the prophecy in Psalm 83. Right now Germany is pushing against Iran and sending humanitarian aid to Gaza. The German run European Union tripled its aid for Gaza after the Hamas attack. Furthermore, German officials travel to Lebanon to make their presence known. You can see why Lebanon and Gaza will look to Germany in the future. Right now, Germany is posing as a mediator between Israel and its neighbors. At the same time, it's warning Iran and Hezbollah from interfering in this conflict. The Bible reveals in another prophecy in Daniel 11 that this conflict will escalate 
and that Germany will intervene in this war militarily by attacking Iran, Israel's chief enemy. Mr. Fluey further explains. Let's go now. I want to read a scripture to you about Iran and about Germany and the Holy Roman Empire, about the king of the north and the king of the south. Verse 40 of Daniel 11. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. Iran is going to push at Germany and the Holy Roman Empire, and they're going to come against him like a whirlwind, that it would make them dizzy, and with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. Now, this is Iran that's going to do the pushing, and it's getting a pretty close to pushing time. You can see that building very easily. You don't even have to see Bible prophecy to understand that if you're looking at it closely. So we have here the king of the south and the king of the north. Of course, our booklet on the king of the south explains all this, and all of our literature is free. But here, this is about Daniel. And Daniel, if you look at Daniel 12, verses 4 and 9, is only for this end time and no other. And it's being fulfilled right now before our eyes. It's being fulfilled now. The king of the south is going to push at Germany and the Holy Roman Empire, and there's going to be an attack made by the king of the north, or Germany and the Holy Roman Empire, and it is going to change everything in this world, and especially in the Middle East. Well, how many people know that Germany is coming on that strong in the Middle East? But let me tell you, the King of the South is aware of it very much so, and very upset about it. Israel will get rid of its worst and greatest enemy in the region, Iran, only to replace it with another, Germany. Watch the Middle East conflict closely and you will see this prophecy being fulfilled. Read Chapter 4 of Mr. Fluey's booklet, The King of the Source, to understand where these events are leading. is Trumpet Hour. We'll turn our attention now to Robert Fico. He's the leader of Slovakia, a nation that we don't focus on as often, but Fico is one of Europe's strongmen, and he's intent on using his position at the helm of Slovakia to challenge some foundational EU policies. And he's allying with Viktor Orban in Hungary to give his push more weight. Fico has slipped under the radar of many analysts, but he is not a figure to be ignored, as we'll hear now in this report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. candidate for the United States' upcoming presidential election was the Mafia Don of one of New York's five families. Imagine if the Don was popular enough to win the election. Such a scenario would be unusual to say the least. 
but a similar one just played out in a young democracy belonging to both the European Union and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This country is Slovakia, and the man Slovaks voted into office this past September is Robert Fico. As far as European politicians go, Fico may not be a household name for too many. Slovakia, with a population of roughly 5.5 million people and an economy smaller than the state of Mississippi's, doesn't make outside news too often. But Slovakia's recent election signals a historic geopolitical shift, not only in Europe, but the whole world. Robert Fico was previously Slovakia's prime minister from 2006 to 2010, and again from 2012 to 2018. He leads SMR, a leftist populist party descended from the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia. Despite leading a party on the left, some of Fico's policies are characteristic of the right in most other countries. He has pushed to keep Slovakia, for example, ethnically homogenous and free of Islamic immigration. He said in 2016, Islam has no place in Slovakia, and I do not wish there were tens of thousands of Muslims in the country. He fought against EU mandatory quotas of refugees when he was prime minister before, and after his time in office, during the COVID-19 crisis, he was the face of Slovakia's anti-vaccination movement. Many rural Slovakians therefore appreciate Fico as a breath of fresh air in an otherwise progressive Europe. But unlike Europe's other populist firebrands, Fico comes with some interesting baggage. He has very public links to organized crime. Last year, Slovakia's National Crime Agency, for example, claimed Fico founded a quote-unquote criminal organization within the halls of power in Bratislava, Slovakia's capital. According to Slovakian prosecutors, Fico had weaponized police and tax agencies to attack political rivals. Some of Fico's associates were arrested and later acquitted of charges, but the prosecutors convicted over 40 people connected to Fico's government, mainly for charges of corruption. This included figures such as judges and intelligence officers. Fito himself was protected by parliamentary immunity as an MP, so he was never formally convicted of any charges. But that isn't the only angle of what many people call Fito's mafia state. There is also strong evidence to suggest that Fito was literally working with the mafia. Fito has links specifically to Drangheta, an Italian mafia group. Drangheta is no small fish. According to a Europol report from 2013, quote, The Drangheta holds a dominant position in the cocaine market in Europe and is involved in many other criminal fields, including weapons trafficking, fraud, rigging of public tenders, corruption, intimidation, extortion, and environmental crimes, end quote. What are Fito's links to this particular group? Well, during his second stint in office, he hired as his chief advisor Maria Troshkova, a former model and Miss Universe candidate. Troshkova had little political experience and was a puzzling choice for such a senior role. But she used to be business partners with Antonino Vallada, a Dragetta member extradited to Italy in 2018 on drug trafficking charges. That Fico would choose somebody with this background as his chief advisor, of all things, is interesting to say the least. Slovakia got a good look at how entrenched Drangheta was in the government that same year. An investigative journalist, Jan Kuciak, was examining links between Drangheta and Fico's government. He uncovered evidence that Drangheta was smuggling weapons to Italy through Slovakia, and he also wrote articles claiming Fico's government was helping Drangheta embezzle European Union funds allocated for agricultural purposes. On February 21st, 2018, Jan Kuciak and his fiancée were assassinated by Drangheta in connection to his investigating their links with the government. Both Kuciak and his fiancée were only 27 years old. The murder shook Slovakia. 
Although Fico denied any involvement, enough Slovakians didn't believe him. Tens of thousands protested in Bratislava demanding his resignation, and he resigned that year. Five years ago isn't that long of a time. Slovakians hadn't forgotten all of this when they voted for a new government on September 30th. Smyr still won the largest number of votes. Fico's new government gained parliamentary approval on November 21st. Now that he is prime minister again, what are Fico's first priorities? Well, top of the list is cutting off military aid to Ukraine. Since Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine, Slovakia's previous government has sent Ukraine military aid worth over $718 million. Fico has stated that while humanitarian aid from Slovakia will continue, he will cut off military aid completely. He also said he would support no new Russian sanctions at the European Union level. Fico has previously had close relations with Russian President Vladimir Putin, and he has said the solution to the Ukraine war must be diplomatic, or in other words, Russia needs a piece of this pie in any peace deal. Meanwhile, for domestic policies, under the banner of emptying overcrowded prisons, Fico has also promised to shorten the jail time for those convicted of corruption. He suspended several influential investigators in Slovakia's police force who have previously uncovered corruption in Smyr's earlier governments, and this is as a Smyr MP and former police force president is in legal trouble for running organized crime from within the police. In other words, Slovakia is getting an oligarch as prime minister bent on legalizing corruption. He is a friend of Vladimir Putin and is willing to make a deal with him over Ukraine. He has deep connections to Italian mafia and may even be involved in murdering a journalist. In short, he's the kind of person ready to become Slovakia's king. Slovakia is a small country on Europe's eastern edge that was recently under a communist dictatorship. Government corruption there is evidently part of business as usual. So some may wonder what the big deal of all this is. But the big deal is this. Slovakia is a member of the European Union and NATO, and Fico will now contribute his influence to both. Fico now has veto power over important decisions in both organizations, and other member states will have to start working with him to get things done. Fico's rise also mirrors the rise of anti-establishment movements all over Europe. Countries like Italy, Sweden, Finland, and the Netherlands have all had recent elections where populist parties have done well enough to participate in or even form government. Most of these movements aren't led by figures as controversial as Robert Fico. But if Slovakians are willing to vote in a man plausibly with journalist blood on his hands... One has to wonder how many other Europeans are willing to do the same. Many people's perception of Europe is that it is a modern world of glass and steel skyscrapers, of human rights and multiculturalism, of everything men like Robert Fico stand against. People could claim that countries like Slovakia are taking Europe down a new path, a different path. But they're not. They're taking Europe down an old path, a well-trodden path, and one that history proves does not bid well for Europe as a whole and for the world at large. The Bible has a lot to say about this developing transformation of Europe. Revelation 13 is a prophecy of a beast, a biblical symbol for an empire. This beast is a great war-making power. It is a vast realm extending its rule and influence over what verse 7 of Revelation 13 calls all kindreds and tongues and nations. It persecutes and even kills those not in line with this program. As Revelation 13 verses 5 and 6 bring out, it has the audacity to even challenge God himself. Putting Revelation 13 together with related prophecies shows this beast to be the Roman Empire. Ancient Rome fell long ago. As Revelation 13 verse 3 brings out, it was wounded to death. So what does this have to do with today? Verse 3 continues, 
quote, and his deadly wound was healed. Revelation 17 continues the story. Here in this prophecy is also pictured a beast. But unlike the previous beast, this one is written by a woman, a biblical symbol of a church. This is speaking of an empire to rise from the ashes of old Rome with religious power behind it, the Holy Roman Empire. Revelation 17 verse 3 shows that this beast has seven heads and ten horns. And later on in the chapter, the Bible interprets the heads as seven consecutive incarnations of this empire, rising one after the other and wreaking havoc on the world at their apexes. History records six of these resurrections, led by bloody tyrants like Charlemagne, Napoleon, and Hitler. That means there is one more left to come. Verses 12 to 14 of Revelation 17, meanwhile, show the meaning of these ten horns. These are ten kings, ten individual dictators in Europe, pooling their resources together to form this last resurrection of the beast. Trepa.com assistant managing editor Richard Palmer wrote for our January 2018 print edition, quote, However these events in Eastern Europe play out, we see clear movements towards something that looks remarkably like what biblical prophecy describes. Countries across Europe want strongmen, men with personal charisma and personal power are taking office. Voters are willing to hand these men unprecedented authority to make them kings. And these men want to combine into a regional grouping of like-minded leaders. End quote. The identities of all of these kings aren't fully known, yet. But someone like Robert Fizzo is a good candidate. Either way, it won't be long before this beast surfaces in its entirety for all to see. To learn more, please read Mr. Palmer's article, Introducing Europe's Eastern Strongmen, available at thetrumpet.com. It's time for today's Last Word. Is poverty a sign of righteousness? Some see it that way, as something admirable and even godly. Some live very Spartan lives, even going so far as to confine themselves to a bare-bones existence in a monastery or a convent, thinking that this draws them closer to God. But what does the Bible say about money? Well, the Bible is a vault of wisdom on this topic. It contains a great deal of practical instruction. And we have an article on thetrumpet.com that takes a deep dive into it. This article is called God's View on Making and Managing Money. And I wanted to take you through a few of the points in this article and encourage you to print off a copy of it for yourself. The Bible shows us that God does want us to prosper. You can take a look at passages like John 10.10, 10, 3 John 2, and Ecclesiastes 5.19 to see evidence of that. The very first psalm also makes this clear. And that's an inspiring truth to understand. He wants us to prosper and makes clear that if we go His way, He'll bless us. The Scriptures also contain some salient warnings about slothfulness on one hand and a lust for money on the other. Two different extremes that both lead to calamity. And the scriptures also illustrate the dangers of going into debt in the wrong ways and the importance of saving for the future and setting aside money for emergencies, as well as the principle of budgeting, allocating money for specific purposes to cover all of your expenses, from food and housing to entertainment. The scriptures make plain that all of this can help you to have a financially stable life. 
And then there are also passages explaining what appears to be a great paradox. And that is, if you give, generously share your wealth with others in the right way, then that actually increases your own wealth. And a mandatory part of this giving means giving to God. That's clear from the Bible's passages about tithing, giving 10% of your income to Him and His work. There's also a powerful section in this article about a secret of happiness. And I'll leave that for you to check out on your own in this article. The scriptures in here are all laid out plainly, going through these various topics and more. So please check out the show notes for today's episode on SoundCloud to find a link to that article, God's View on Making and Managing Money. And we have links there also to the other various pieces of literature that we mentioned today and that our reports were based on. Or you can just navigate to thetrumpet.com and click on the Listen tab, and then you'll see Trumpet Hour and this episode's show notes right there, including all of those links. That's at thetrumpet.com. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and that brings us to the end of Trumpet Hour. You can email us any comments you may have about today's episode. The address is letters at thetrumpet.com. Many thanks to my guests, Mr. Abraham Blondeau, Josue Michels, and Mihailo Zekich. Thanks also to Isaac Lorenz and Nicholas Irwin for helping with the audio work for this episode. And thanks very much to you for spending some of your time with us today, and I'll leave you with this thought from Winston Churchill. Time and money are largely interchangeable terms. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world.